Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, 100 years later, the New South Wales government seems to have admitted Eliza Doolittle was right. The Rhine in spine does die mildly on the Pline. Hurricanes often happen in Hawke's Reunipean holdings, but it's happy days for the high sea pay as the New South Wales government hypothesises on homes habiting on the floodplains. Just you wait, Tony Libke, just you wait. Eight Claire has announced a changing of the guard with Adrian Libke appointed as CEO and secretary at its recent AGM. And continuing with this trite theme, I'm a good Optima report, I am. Strong premium growth rate appears extremely positive for the industry, but like any gutter snipe, there's trouble round the corner. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by senior journalist Bernice Flower Girl Han, deputy editor Wendy Eliza Pugh, editor John Colonel Pickering Diggs, and our very own Henry Higgins chairman Terry McMullen. Welcome, Terry. <laughs> I'm immediately think, why can't the English teach their children how to speak? Exactly. I say welcome, or should I say, hi, Bernice. How do you do? Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Have you ever been called a gutter snipe? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Good morning, John. Morning. You a fan of My Fair Lady? I think I have seen it, but a long time ago. Oh, John. Your rendition brought it all back. <laughs> John, your, your children should have been brought up on that. <laughs> and hello, Wendy. Morning, Andrew. I'm assuming you prefer the original Pygmalion. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't actually. I'm, I'm quite a fan of My Fair Lady. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, there was an announcement on floodplains that got the Insurance Council pretty excited at the weekend, Wendy. Can you uh, run us through that? Yes, well, New South Wales put three housing projects in the Hawkesbury and Pean Valley west of Sydney on hold a couple of years ago until further flood risk investigations and evacuation modelling was done. So that's been finished and a report released and the government's announced that two of those proposed projects won't go ahead and a third will partially proceed but with strict conditions. So of nearly 13,000 new homes that were flagged to go ahead, now only about, you know, up to 2,300 will get the all clear. And it's, you know, flagged that it's really going to take a tougher approach on building in these high-risk locations. So ICA says this is a, a clear and strong action that will protect families and businesses from future dangerous flood and is actually the first tangible decision by a state government in response to National Cabinet's agreement last year, which was said that, you know, the, the days of building on floodplains has to end. Why is this such a big deal, John? Presumably it's not going to fix Australia's flood risk issues overnight. No, it won't. But it's a small step, but it's a it's a big deal because, uh, as Wendy says, it, the ICA interprets this as really the first significant uh, decision, which is, you know, common sense, let's be honest. But it's something that's been sorely lacking over, over the last uh, few decades or centuries even so yeah there have been plenty of promises as wendy says there was that statement from national cabinet that the days of building on floodplains have to end but it's one thing saying it it's another thing actually doing it and this new south wales decision is 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 a small step in the right direction you know there is a, a massive history of poor planning decisions that it's going to take us decades to unravel but i guess at the very least we we shouldn't be making the situation any worse when you think that we're spending millions now to relocate properties in the in the most flood risk areas it would be insanity to be 
putting more in those sorts of positions so yeah it's not going to be fixed overnight not by a long shot it's going to take decades but this decision is is more than we've had in the past so i think the insurance council is is right to to welcome it and to try and encourage more of the same insurance news flagged the problems with the hawks european more than a decade ago terry why is action only starting now? Because governments move incredibly slowly, especially where money is concerned and communities and property developers. Look, that's the best reason I can offer. I think you're referring to an edition of the magazine from way back in 2011, which called the Hawkesbury Nepean Basin Australia's biggest flood risk. That was also the edition that really dug deep on flood risk and the industry's efforts to cover flood. And I've got to admit, it's one of my favourites. We had John Trowbridge saying insurers couldn't be expected to offer insurance cover for flood at prices that didn't include the full costs of the risks they underwrite, something that still causes problems. And the other was a map of the east coast of Australia highlighting the areas of major flood risk, Brisbane and Ipswich, the Gold Coast, New South Wales, Northern Rivers, the Hunter Valley and Maitland and northwestern Victoria. I think all those areas, except maybe Gold Coast, have flooded since that time because governments move very slowly. Well, we're moving on more quickly. Actuarial consultants Finity have published their major Optima report, Benice. What are the key findings? Yeah, so Finity flagged up a couple of key findings. Uh, we have gross earned premium up some 12.5% to $56 billion, and that's driven by the rate rises that we've been mentioning a fair bit on the podcast. I mean, we know the cost challenges and insurers have been pushing through the higher prices and it's showing up in the premium growth numbers. So the 12.5% is actually the strongest in over a decade and it really shows the extent of the price rises we're seeing. So in FY24, uh, this financial year, we can expect premiums uh, to grow some 11%. Uh, that's Finity's projections. And investments uh, rebounded strongly, 2.4 billion, a sharp turnaround from FY22.1 billion loss. And that's important according to Finity, as it sort of helped the uh, industry's net profit to, you know, to, to rise up to 3.6 billion. It's a reversal of fortune. And the profit outlook for this year, uh, 4.1 billion. We'll see whether that comes true. Yeah. This is mostly positive news, though, isn't it, John? Definitely, definitely. Profitability for insurers has been far too low for, for, for several years now. So to have the return on equity back to something near target range is, is definitely positive and take a lot of pressure off the industry. It is worth mentioning, of course, that householders remains a problem. As we've reported quite regularly, that insurers are still struggling to make money on the householders class, even though premiums have gone up rapidly. Infinity does say that it's the fourth year in a row of underwriting losses on uh, the householders class. The other thing to point out is, is Benice's story yesterday says that it's not all it's not all plain sailing. Yeah, yes, gross rent premium is is growing and profitability is back to where it should be, but there are some headwinds. There's the uncertain economic landscape and claims inflation to worry about. Well, Steadfast held its AGM last week and gave more insight into its American expansion, Wendy. Yes, CEO Robert Kelly spoke about the way the um, ISU acquisition in the US really fits in with its existing model that it has here in Australia. 
So on the tech side, there's opportunities with the Insight back office system and particularly with the Steadfast client trading platform, also with premium funding. And he mentioned that five Steadfast underwriting agencies could be introduced to that network. And early interactions have shown there's interest from ISU members in the Steadfast Trapped Capital Project, which allows brokers to sell down equity without actually leaving the network and provides them with a succession plan. And with this acquisition as well, um, Steadfast has beefed up its executive team, I guess, and appointed Steadfast International CFO and CEO after naming uh, Samantha Holman as the, the CEO of that division earlier this year. Do you see this as a potentially transformational deal for Steadfast, Harry? Well, it's a good way to enter a, a very difficult market. The, the US market's volatility is always going to be a, a worry for insurers. Let's never forget HIH, which really made its fortune in the workers' comp market in, in California, sold it for a fortune and then decided, let's go back in. And the rules had changed and it basically did all its money. But it's a very different story when it comes to brokers. This seems to be a deal straight out of the Steadfast songbook. It's been built on brokers. And this expansion really capitalizes on, on its experience and ability. It'll take years to become a, a powerful player, I guess, but I think it's a very clever move. And, and when you think about it, it, it's also a pretty logical way for a company like Steadfast to expand into a new market. Start small, grow big. Well, loss adjusters are a critical part of the industry, and Aclear has announced a changing of the guard, Benice. Yeah, it's definitely apt to call it a changing of the guard. Um, Tony Lipke, A-list first and only CEO since its establishment in 1997, um, stepped down at last week's board meeting in Brisbane. So um, we have a new generation of leaders in place to lead the body. Taking over as CEO is Adrian Lipke, the son of Tony. Uh, so Adrian has been involved with Ayla for many years under the mentorship of his father. Then we've also got a new president and deputy president, Nicholas Akers, who's director of technical assessing is president, and Colin McAnery, his deputy, and Greg Helping of Godfrey's Chartered Law Suggestors. Um, he's the uh, he was elected executive member and Glenn Lloyd, uh, the first president to serve a third term, he will take the role of uh, at the education director. So uh, just back to Tony, he'll still be around though. I mean, he has agreed to you know continue to be part of the organizing committees for the Asian Claims Convention next year and in 2025. Well, it sounds like an important transition. Tony um, has been a steady hand for many years, hasn't he, Terry? Yeah, he has. He's done a terrific job, too, building ACLA since it was was first formed way back when. He's made it a big player in Asia and this region, and it hasn't been easy because the loss-adjusting sector has totally changed in that time, and we now have that, that sector really dominated by the big operators. Tony's made a, a couple of unsuccessful attempts to retire. So it's good to see he'll still be around to keep building that training and communication focus that I, I think he's been so incredibly successful at. His son Adrian's a chip off the old block. So well done, Acla. You've got everything you wanted. And finally, John, we can at last draw a line under the NEBA Code and Broker Disclosure of Commission. Yes, that's right. I think I think we can, at least for now. So yeah, this is quite a saga, really, when you think that the NEBA code review was very much delayed. So the last code, I think, was published in 2014, and it's supposed to be reviewed every three years. The Hain Royal Commission got in the way to, to quite a large extent. So the, 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 the review did get delayed significantly. 
now we had the code published last year, but uh, one part of that code was was delayed in its implementation, as we've reported, and that was the bit about remuneration disclosure. Without going back over the whole story uh, in too much detail, uh, Niebuhr inserted into the code a section that said that brokers should disclose their remuneration, including commissions to individuals and small businesses. Now, that small businesses bit stirred up a bit of controversy and some members didn't like it. So that bit of the code was delayed. After further consultation, that bit came out. So now the code says that brokers only need to disclose commissions to retail clients. And how that's defined is quite important. A retail client is uh, uh, somebody purchasing a, a retail product as, as defined by the Corporations Act. So Niba said back in July that they were going to make this change and take the small business element out of the code, but then nothing happened for quite a while. And uh, it was only last week that a revised wording of the code was confirmed and published. The code, of course, has to be implemented in full tomorrow. So brokers do finally know and their clients finally know what is expected on the remuneration front. It's all there on the NEBA website to read and understand. So yes, we have clarity now. The only point being that this has gone on so long that uh, we do a review of the code again shortly. So um, I believe that's going to start next year. And in theory, there should be another code published in 2025. I'd say watch this space, but uh, you're not going to see a lot. So maybe listen to this space. That brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Wendy Pugh, John Deeks, Bernice Han, and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Inside Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Hold up. 